from hrgrapevine.com. It's the HR Grapevine podcast. Hi there, Eric Niewerowski, host of the pod. Thank you for joining me. And in today's episode, I want to talk about a topic that I have talked about a couple times before, and that is resilience. Resilience is a concept that absolutely fascinates me. The idea of building back to better and being able to bounce back through traumas, through situations, really has been at the cornerstone of my career and personal development. However, as we shift into this post-pandemic world, I'm wondering if the concept of resilience or maybe the word has just become sort of a kitschy cliche term, right? That's why I was thrilled to have my guest this week, Bruce Daisley. Now, Bruce Daisley is a former tech executive turned workplace culture enthusiast. I love that term, workplace culture enthusiast. I got that right off his LinkedIn. And since his days at a VP at Twitter, Bruce has written a couple books and his newest book, Fortitude, is out soon. And it really gets into the concept of resilience and maybe companies and business leaders and by extension, HR is getting it all wrong. You know, a lot of times the concept of resilience is kind of baked around this idea that you do it on your own. And Bruce has some interesting insights on that through a whole stack of data and research he has compiled over the past couple of years. And to Bruce, resilience isn't an individual thing. It's a collective thing. So it's a really, really good chat I had with Bruce kind of unpacking this current concept of resilience and figuring out ways that companies can do it better. So here's my chat with Bruce. All right. Well, Bruce, uh, thanks for joining me this week on the HR Grapevine podcast. Why don't you know you you have quite the resume. Why don't you just take a quick minute and introduce yourself and a little bit about you, your history and uh, how you became an author? Yeah, so I guess my background really is I worked in tech firms like Google, helped set up YouTube in the UK for Google, and then went on to to work at Twitter. And I ended up being European vice president for Twitter for um, for about eight years. I was Twitter for for uh, I was Twitter for eight years. I was European vice president for five. During the course of that time, I became obsessed with workplace culture. You know, especially when you're in a small, smaller company like Twitter, trying to in some way create a better environment or a better working culture is becomes an obsession because you're thinking, how do we attract talented people to come and work here when clearly these much bigger and much better resourced competitors? So I became obsessed with workplace culture. And broadly, I felt like I was doing a good job at it. And then things went so spectacularly wrong. We ended up with like this huge burnout epidemic with people quitting with no jobs to go to. And my response in that time was to create a podcast as partly as an act of subversion against my bosses and partly mm-hmm. as a process of self-education. How do you, how does anyone create a good workplace culture? There must be, I, I maybe naively didn't realize what, a, a incredible wealth of academic research, psychological research that was into it. So the podcast became a, a journey of self-discovery. And I've just now um, published or I'm about to publish my second book, which is Fortitude, which is about how the way we talk about resilience 
is often unhelpful, uh, semi-mythical. And, you know, if we're not careful, resilience can be a bit of a toxic myth. All right. So I want to talk about your book, uh, Fortitude. I personally am fascinated with the concept of resilience. It's something I've covered quite a bit at my time uh, at HR Grapevine. What interested me when you sent me a copy of your book is the prologue. And the title of your prologue is F Resilience. Uh, So I guess I just want to kick off. Have we been looking at the concept of resilience all wrong? Yeah, well, the, the book started off partly as an investigation. And to some extent, you know, as, as I was chatting to a friend of mine, I was saying, look, you know, I feel like I want to get to the bottom of this resilience term. And why do we need to get to the bottom of it? Well, number one, when I told countless people that I was writing a book on resilience, I got a lot of eye rolls in, in Canada. I got a lot of people who said to me, oh, we've all been sent on a resilience training course. And I said, you know, the, the inevitable follow-up, I said, oh, did it work? And they said, no, well, this is the dirty secret. It doesn't work. And so, you know, I've got a friend who works in an NHS hospital and she said to me, um, if you mention resilience here, people will thump you. I said, why? And she said, well, resilience seems to be, rather than giving us more resource, Rather than giving us more people, they just they just arrange a lunchtime session uh, telling us how to be more resilient. And it's kind of like we're not going to give you what we, you want, but we're going to give you what we can get away with. Anyway, I found myself. Uh, so the prologue of the book starts in Beirut two years ago. 4th of August, 2020, just in the midst of the first COVID uh, year. And there was this colossal, phenomenal, you need to see it with your own eyes explosion that ripped apart the city. You know, we'd been next to that location the day before, staying in an Airbnb, and we'd moved to somewhere about a mile and a half away. Mm. And it sort of, the explosion ripped through the city in a, in a most um, elemental way. I mean, we, we were terrified, we, you know, looking into each other's eyes thinking, what on earth is that? Um, Anyway, we, we found ourselves in this city and the, the coverage, it was some explosives that had been inattentively left in a a port side uh, warehouse. Anyway, phenomenal ripped part, biggest explosion in, in peacetime in any city ever. Right. Um, anyway, we, uh, the coverage that really came from international eyes just was so jarring for how different it was to what we experienced locally. So, you know, the coverage was saying, oh, well, the Beiruts, the Lebanese people are resilient. They'll cope with this. New York times said, if we know anything about the Lebanese people, they're resilient. And it's really interesting because the people on the ground were begging, pleading, hoping that some international help would come and, and and relieve them. And yet it was a bit like, you know, even though there were those demands on the ground, please can France help us? Can the UK help us? Even though there was those demands on the ground, the coverage said, oh, Lebanese people are resilient. And pretty much no one helped. They moved right. on and helped. And and it was it became this really interesting thing that simultaneously I was seeing a lot of friends telling me they were being sent on resilience training courses, which seemed to be saying, oh, you're responsible for what's going wrong here. It's nothing to do with the fact that we've got this toxic working regime. It's nothing to do with the fact that you're working longer hours than ever before. It's the fact that you're not very resilient. And simultaneously, the people in Beirut were saying, we need help. We need, we're, we're the victims, we need support. And they were being told, don't worry, you've got this. And it just really struck me that this, like, there's a slightly politicized element to resilience. We kind of tell people to be resilient when we want them to suck it up, get on with it. 
Anyway, I found myself investigating because, um, you know, there's no shortage of organizations that offer resilience courses. So I wanted to know what are these courses and what you discover is that the courses are very much based on this very small pocket of research, this resilience orthodoxy, as I call it. And we can look into the the times that that research, that that training has been tested. And in all of the peer-reviewed studies, it doesn't work. And so then it becomes this really interesting thing. Number one, okay, we're, we're seeing resilience is this label that's maybe a bit toxic in the way we use it. Simultaneously, mm-hmm. if we look out into the wild, we do see examples of resilience. So we see you know, the people of Ukraine are like that, the most evident, timely example. The people who are just able to show this monumental bravery. So we do see resilience in the wild. And I wanted to know why, when we witness resilience there, we're not necessarily applying the le- learnings of that. So, that it's, so it's broadly, that's what the book's about. Yeah, great. So we'll we'll, we'll talk about the issues that you found with the resilience training in a second. But I want to talk about when you kick off the book, you have a study with like some really super elite athletes and we're talking Simone Biles, we're talking Mo Farah. What can we learn from these super elite athletes? Really interesting piece of work. And this was one of the, 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 pieces of research that lived in my head and, you know, dwelled with me. And so part of the way I wanted to understand it. So um, UK Sport did this research studying super elite athletes. So these are people who go to Olympic Games, World Championships. Um, it was in track and field. So it was in Olympic sports. And they uh, they wanted to know what was the thing that differentiated them from those who went and got bronze medals? In the same sport at the same time, was there a difference? What they discovered, they they took 16 of these super elite athletes. They say in the UK, these are household names. So these are retired athletes now. And they looked at their biographies. And what they found was, without exception, all of the 16 super elite athletes had experienced significant episode of childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in contrast, the bronze medal winning athletes, um, they ha- about one in four of them had a pre uh, had a big had experienced <laughs> anything close. So that's interesting. So the, there was there was something going on where super elite athletes were having these moments that I guess to some extent potentially catalyzed um, elite performance from them. Anyway, I, I was intrigued. I wanted to to look into it, and what you discover is that. Really, the mechanism that's going on is that what happens when we experience childhood trauma is that it serves to shatter our self-image. Childhood trauma is often experienced as shame. Now, in, right. in you know, Mo Farah's case, you can very much understand that a child of eight, nine, ten, who is finding themselves as a domestic servant is, is so effectively sold by his family, as far as we can gather, mm-hmm. into this modern slavery. That while we might look at this and think, gosh, there's nothing to blame for that kid, the, the individual involved often experiences trauma as shame, embarrassment. Yeah. It, it serves to unsynchronize them from people around them because they can't tell people their experience. And what you yeah. find in those cases is that very frequently, 
if they are the fortunate one in a thousand, one in 10,000 who's got a, a, a skill that they can channel their interest into, it becomes manifested as their identity becomes this, this protective thing. They, they channel their, their identity into working harder and harder and harder at their sport. Mm-hmm. And so it often elevates them. So, you know, for the majority of people who experience trauma, actually trauma can be destructive. It, it, it sweeps away their life. And these freak one-offs, you know, Andy Murray's another example. Andy right. Murray, the tennis player, uh, is the uh, is the survivor of the only British school shooting ever. Yep. And so, you know, he simultaneously said in the course of a year, he experienced that shooting where he had hid in the headmaster's office. His brother left home to go and train and his mom and dad divorced. And all of those things are broadly interpreted by a young mind as, you know, inexplicably and, and tragically, but they're often interpreted as, is this my fault? And right. so, you know, quite often um, what you find in this case is Andy Murray says he just feels that he can train and train and train. He felt at the time that when he was playing tennis, it was an escape for him. It took the anxiety and the panic away from him. And mm. so what we find in these cases is often remarkably, the people who go on to achieve these incredible things, it's not necessarily they've, they've got something extra. They've often got something less. They, they feel this void inside them that they try to fill with their endeavor. But just gives us a pointer that identity is real critical component of resilience, of fortitude. And actually understanding that is a really important part of how we can bring it into our workplaces, I think. Yeah. So let's talk about that. How do we bring that in to the workplace? So in the book, you and you mentioned it already that you have some issues with resilience training that a lot of firms offer. What's what's wrong with it? What's like what would be like the number one issue that you see throughout your research? Yeah, the number one thing, the number one issue is that the way that we talk about resilience, the way that we invite others to be more resilient uh, presumes that it's somehow this individualistic trait. Mm-hmm. It presumes that somehow some of us have got um, resilience and some of us haven't. And, you know, the responsibility is either to to coach it into us or to to draw our, t- our attention to where the button lies, how we press it. And the fundamental thing, you know, the 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 two and a half years research that went into to this work. And, and I was just so fortunate to um, to find the, the incredible work of some leading social scientists. Broadly, the, the finding is that we can't be resilient on our own. And it's just, you know, it's why when we look at the people of Ukraine, actually the the way that they are resilient is because they draw strength from each other. They are reminded of each other. And actually the thing that serves of trauma to unsynchronize us to is that, you know, we often feel isolated when we have trauma. And so knowing how to get over that, <laughs> get over that and to talk to others and to, to be connected to others. This is the fundamental thing. Any organization trying to make their team more resilient needs to think of how do we foster a sense of togetherness? How do yeah. we make ev- everyone feel like we're all in this together? Now, in the era of hybrid working, that's a bit harder than it was before. But I think if you start with that intention, how do we create moments that when we are together, we we nurture a sense of togetherness? This is the route into resilience, really. So it's not it's not singular because, yeah, every, you know, a lot of like uh, in past uh, experts I've spoken to, you know, behavior psychologists, you know, they always kind of point at it's at the individual. 
I think you paint a really great example with the Ukrainian people as how they're all, you know, coming together and 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 to fight off this 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 just awful invasion that's happening. I'm thinking of it as a way, say, like I think Starbucks in the States is a really good example of this, the sort of group mindset where now individual Starbucks locations are the employees are voting together to unionize. So would that be like, that's Precisely. an example of this group resilience, right? Precisely. Um, and, you know, it's, you know, th- to some extent then it's a spiky issue because mm-hmm. what we find is that um, collectivization, feeling connected with other people, and that might be via the form of unionization, or it might be just a sense of being collegiate, you know, actually one of the things I identified during the, the course of the pandemic, I saw a number of organizations who were hiring community managers. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, that is fascinating. And I chatted to a couple of these community community managers. I said, can you talk me through the little baby steps that you go from an organization not feeling connected to feeling connected? Because I presumed they were going to try and create this huge homogenous community. And the one of the people um, said to me, an organization of 500 people, she said, the first step is to make people feel that their own personal identities are recognized. So that right. might be parents at the organization or people of you know, South Asian origin at the organization or people who who are gay at the organization, mm-hmm. making them feel like they they their identities reflected in others starts making them feel part of something. But it could be in your instance there, people who maybe feel like, gosh, we're working incredibly hard here and we don't feel like the we don't feel like we're being supported collectively. So maybe it's about collective self-organizing collective strength absolutely but it's a reminder that actually when we feel connected to other people we feel our most resilient yeah well that's fascinating so i guess then is there is there no such thing as resilience i mean that that, that can't be right or uh, yeah, I, I just think that it's um, we just need to be reminded that it's a collective thing. So, yeah. you know, so quite often if an organization is saying, you know, the teams here are feeling more burnt out than ever before, we've got people going off on sick, people feeling like they can't cope. What? Uh, and so, you know, how can we make them more resilient? A conversation that I've I've personally witnessed uh, dozens of times this year. What you might say is, okay, I wonder if what we're seeing here is people are feeling they they don't have anyone to turn to. They they feel overwhelmed, and you know, so the steps might be, okay, how can we forge a sense of connectedness? So you know, people feeling burnt out, absolutely number one thing that anyone needs to do is think about how can we reduce the workload on these people? How do we give them some degree of agency? One of the biggest determinants of, of resilience of fortitude is a sense of personal control. So if you open your calendar on a Monday morning or heaven forbid a Sunday night, and mm-hmm. you've got 40 hours of meetings this week, that mm-hmm. absence of control, you know, often expressed in like a claustrophobic anxiety, that's, you're never going to feel resilient if you don't have that control. So, you know, an organization might say, firstly, how do we gift some control to the people in our team? But secondly, how do we make them feel more connected to other people? How do we make them feel like there's people like them working here? The sense that we're all in it together is a, a really critical uh, next step, I think. These things that you were talking about, the collective, super easy when you work for an organization that has, say, a headcount of 
over 500, right? There you have lots of different groups, you know, and, and this is where we find that a lot of those employee action groups, be it, uh, you know, focusing on neurodiversity, uh, 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 you know, different ethnic heritages, certainly LGBTQ communities. It's really easy to build that collectivity when there's a lot of people. How do you do that when we're talking about SMEs, when a lot of people still work for small family run companies? How do you get that sense of collectivity when there's not that many people necessarily to be collective around? Yeah, I think, you know, quite quite often uh, the small smaller companies um, suffer slightly less from this and it's mm. medium like it's you know it's, it's sort of the medium size the ones slightly more than and can fit in a minibus but um right yeah th- that's where you start <laughs> start struggling critical fo- focus i would say you know i i witnessed this firsthand um the quite often teams are a bogged down with things that don't necessarily add value, but feel like they, they, they are essential, you know, dozens of meetings. One of the, 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 the initiatives we set about doing when I had a burnout epidemic at Twitter is we said, what would stop us from um, halving the amount of time we spend in meetings? And that came specifically from, there's a really helpful question that you can ask. Um, if you've got, you know, a, a team situation, we, we said to the team, yeah, a lot of them were quitting or on the verge of quitting. Mm-hmm. And we said to them, if the culture here was better in a year's time, what would we have done to do it? And what we heard repeatedly from people was, oh, we'll have reduced the amount of time spending meetings. And so then we thought, well, look, unless we do this, people are going to quit. So, right. you know, because it's very, very difficult when, when people tell you, you need to spend less time in meetings. The next thing you think is you think we can't change that. Right. It's out of our control. Yeah. And, you know, there's almost like, uh, well, meetings we can't change. And so we we thought, OK, let's set about trying to halve the amount of time in meetings. And look, there's three ways to do it. You know, you can reduce the frequency of meetings, you can reduce the length of meetings, or you mm-hmm. can reduce the number of people you invite to meetings. The last one people get a little bit anxious about, a little bit sensitive about. But, yeah, we, you know, that even though they might think they've got too many meetings, they don't want to be disinvited from the one, the good ones. And so, but we just set about doing it. And we didn't, in the end, reduce it by half, but we reduced it by about 40%. Um, and what you just find in that situation is people report feeling a little bit less exhausted they report okay i've got a lovely wednesday afternoon now where i can get some stuff done um you know there was really interesting piece of work published on the front of harvard business review a couple of months ago which was introducing meeting free days yep. and organizations actually would a lot of them were coordinating this with the days that people were in the office together yep. and they said we're not going to have any standing meetings so feel free to arrange a lunch a coffee with someone swing around someone's desk and even just that tiny bit of extra autonomy was expressed as people feeling a, a bit better well-being, a bit less burnt out. So just a, an interesting reminder that these things can have, even in small organizations, they can have a disproportionate effect, I think. Okay, so I want to wrap it up with this, if I may. And again, just thinking through the lens of the pandemic, right? It's it's going to be on top of a lot of, you know, sort of business leaders' minds for a long time. What can we have done ahead of it? What did we do wrong during it? What are we doing coming out of it? And I guess 
to me, from what we're starting to see in a lot of the articles we're writing, uh, Mike Ashley is a really, really good example of this. Uh, the Goldman Sachs CEO is another really good example of this. It just seems like people are like, okay. And for all you listeners at home, I'm making the movement of washing my hands of it. We got through it. COVID's done. So with that in mind, Bruce, do you think that we're becoming less resilient over time? I mean, it's the perennial question. I think, you know, these, uh, these a generational thing where every generation believes that the generation that follows them are slightly more fragile. There's, there's a really interesting bit of example of this where psychologists were asked um, to – You'll be familiar with the marshmallow test. The marshmallow test is is a young preschooler is offered a marshmallow, but -hmm. if they wait three minutes, they can have two marshmallows. Uh And if you you ask psychologists, you say, do you think over time kids have been getting better at this or worse than this? They will say to you, psychologists, trained people who are told to avoid uh, narrative failures and and psychological tricks, uh, they will say, oh, kids will be getting worse. In fact, kids have been getting better at this for the last 50 years. But there's just an assumption that the the generation that follows us aren't as good. Now, you know, there are people who will say um, young people are maybe being increasingly protected from adversity. There's, mm-hmm. there's an author called Jonathan Haidt who wrote a book called The Coddling of the American Mind, which makes this case very strongly, very stridently. Um, I think the evidence on it is, is a little bit sketchier than he might paint. And so, you know, my instinct is possibly if we are getting any less resilient, it's maybe because we are veering into a slightly more an individualistic world. And, right. and actually the the pointers are there for us. The pointers are there, how we can feel more connected, more strong. And possibly the moment we're in right now, uh, where a lot of us could find ourselves working from home three or four days a week, maybe living alone. Um, you know, it's just a reminder that we, we need to develop and nurture these, these senses of being connected to other people as much as possible. I think that's a perfect way to end it. Bruce Daisley, author of the upcoming book, Fortitude. Thanks so much for joining us this week on the HR Grapevine podcast. So grateful for the opportunity to chat. Well, once again, I'd just like to thank Bruce Daisley, author of the upcoming book, Fortitude, to help me unpack and almost change my mind around the concepts of resilience. And you know, as throughout the chat and working on this pod, I've I've been able to self-reflect quite a bit on it. And I've come to the conclusion that I'm at my most resilient when I am around people. And that means a lot of different things these days. If it's within a group setting, out with friends, as if it's just my social circle, if it's my family, or if it's my wonderful colleagues at HR Grapevine dotted all throughout the UK. I've realized with issues that I've had in the past, mental health, grief, that I've been able to build back better through the help of the people around me. So I'm no longer going to think that resilience is sort of a one-to-one, do-it-on-your-own method. So with that, thank you so much for joining me this week on the HR Grapevine podcast, and I will talk to you again soon.